Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Bridgehead. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and today we're back on a topic that we've talked a lot about on The Bridgehead, and that's the topic of pornography. As most of you know, I try to interview a lot of experts to really unpack what goes on inside the porn industry and how the porn industry really affects uh, other people, and especially how it's affecting our culture and our society. So today I'm talking to somebody that I met back in the fall when I was in uh, Houston, Texas for Nicosi's conference on sexual exploitation and pornography. And I met a woman named Jessica Neely, and she actually used to be in the porn industry. She was one of the top Googled porn stars in the 2000s. And then she eventually crashed and left the porn industry, and she's now really on a mission to highlight the dangers of pornography and what goes on inside the porn industry. And, and she's already being heard. Her testimony was one of those that was quite pivotal in having Arkansas declare pornography a, a uh, public health crisis, which a number of states have done now. So we're starting to see a shift as more people not only talk about what porn has done to their lives, uh, but those former porn stars who are willing to come out and explain what's really going on uh, behind the curtain. So I had Jessica Neely on the show, and this is that conversation. All right, well, why don't we start off by uh, you just telling our listeners a bit about our, about your story. Absolutely. Um, well, my name is Jessica Neely, and I was born and raised in a small town in Colorado um, where I was... Uh, where I failed basketball, I failed volleyball, I was horrible at every sport, even though I was five foot eight by third grade. So I was a failure at sports, and the one thing that came natural to me was to be an activist. My parents were pastors in Cedar Edge, Colorado, and they were changing the world. And I saw that, look at all these people that love them, and how to get love is, you know, by being an activist, whether you're loved or hated. <clears throat> So in the 1990s, um, I was in high school, but I was huge into the True Love Waits movement and huge into um, the pro-life movement. And I was passionate about anything and everything. As, as long as I was, like, moving people and their thinking forwards, I was happy. I was satisfied. It was better than playing sports and constantly failing because um, <laughs> I didn't feel like with being an um, <clears throat> marching to the own beat of my drum, I did not feel like I was failing. You know what I mean? I wasn't leading a team down the wrong path. I was like, I know what I believe, and I'm going to lead this train. So, yes, I was raised very conservative, preacher's daughter, and um, ready to set the world on fire. Uh, during my teenage years, uh, we lived near Focus on the Family. My parents were head of our district's denomination, and I was so determined to take over Focus on the Family when Dr. James Dobson died. So um, from high school, I went in, on to seminary. It was called Master's Commission. It was, it's like being evangelist and Bible college on steroids. We'd be traveling during the day, and at nighttime, we would um, we'd do services at churches. So... Being an evangelist kind of felt natural to me. When I graduated from that, I went from there into full-time ministry at the age of 19, which is crazy. <laughs> not many kids do that, but my church did not know I was 19 when they hired me. 
they thought that I had finished a four-year degree, and I had not. I, I never knew that I was young because people did not tell me that I was young. So I had a youth group of over 80 kids in northeast Denver. I went to a very uh, radical church, so I was... Um, Everything was extreme. It was miracles, signs, and wonders. It was 40 days of prayer and fasting. And from that point, I wasn't raised legalistic, but I became legalistic where my relationship with God was completely conditional. And I had to fast more and pray more. And everything was about doing more for God and not about just being. So right. I believe that in my story, that's where... That's where the downhill started. <laughs> right. And what was that downhill? That downhill was uh, I went from being um, $40,000 salary to a church plant in Estes Park, Colorado, which is a little small resort town that if you're going there, you're going there on purpose. So I, um, I was working, <clears throat> I went and got a job, but they don't, they did not have any jobs over 20 hours a week. So everything was minimum wage and I could not even afford heat. So I would go to bed with, I could see my breath in the air and I was like layered up to go to bed, layer on the socks. And, um, I was like, God, I can't afford heat. I can't afford food. I, I looked at my bottle of palm olive soap, and I was in the shower, and I'd wash my hair, my body, my clothes, my dishes, all in the same bath water. And I had, um, I'd been on the mission field before down in Mexico, as my parents are now full-time missionaries, but I was living what I thought was in poverty, but it was almost, I had a sense of pride, like, look what I'm doing for you, God. And that is where um, that relationship with God was not a relationship, and it became very dangerous. It's a dangerous place to be in when you are um, putting your relationship, whether with humans or with God, uh, based on the do's and the don'ts and the legalism of it all. So it was Easter Sunday in 2003. Um, I was going out to my car to warm it up as the month of April in Estes Park, it's freezing cold, and um, I'm not paying attention. You don't have to pay attention to um, you don't have to pay attention to anything in a resort town. And my, um, I didn't see anything come toward me, but all I know is my head hit the hit my car and then hit the ground, the asphalt, and I just saw my blood from my face go into the snow. And all I could think about is that I'm supposed to speak at a purity conference on Wednesday. It's spring break week, and I had no idea what was happening. I was um, the only nudity I'd seen in my life was Schindler's List, and I wasn't able to admit that I'd seen a rated R movie. <laughs> right. So I didn't, I didn't know it was, I didn't know it was happening. But I was like, this is what I'm saving myself for marriage for, and at the same time, I'm going through this checklist in my mind, like, was I wearing a short skirt? Was I wear I'm not wearing short skirt, high heels. I'm not flirtatious. I'm like 220 pounds. I'm muffin top on steroids. And I'm like, I'm not the girl who gets raped. This does not happen to girls like me. There's another kind of girl this happens to. Um, and then my next thought is raped girls can't be in ministry. Raped girls can't talk about purity. Raped girls can't 
saved themselves from marriage. Raped girls have lost all of their cards in one moment in time. And at that moment in time, um, I had no idea what PTSD was. I knew from the 1990s from um, Desert Storm, men were going overseas and coming back a totally different person. And they had just started understanding the rewiring of the brain where you're constantly stuck in fight, flight, or freeze. So it wasn't related to sexual trauma. Right. And nor would it ever be, and you know this because you went to you you've taken your Bible classes. Like this was not something that you talk about in school. This is trauma and this kind of therapy. We just knew that you could pray out anything at an altar call. So, um, so I went to my, I, I threw away all my seminary books. I threw away everything, but I had still taken that stage that Wednesday, and I remember standing there and urinating on stage and people are going, what the heck happened to her? And there's, I don't know too much about makeup and I didn't know how to cover my face real well, but I was a walking disaster that spun out of control. Wow. <laughs> and then, so on this, on this trajectory, right, this, this horrible thing happens to you and, and you know, there's a lot of, a lot of damaging ideas about sexual assault in the Christian community, and that's that's perhaps an entirely separate discussion for another time. But this is is as I remember you telling me this uh, when we when we first met last fall. Uh, this was sort of the turning point for you. This is where you went from from Jessica, the youth minister, and you started down the track to Jessica, the porn star. Absolutely. This was um, this was a time where um, I was known and I was hired because of my last name, not because of my own merits and my own inheritance, but just the inheritance of my last name. And so I didn't know how to not be the preacher's daughter and not be my dad's daughter. So this was the time when it was, I had lost all identity and um, I spun out with a sex addiction and there were no books on female empowerment for me to read, but I was going to make men pay for what they took from me. So I went, um, I started into the sex addiction that I'm not kidding, probably lasted two or three weeks before I went, <laughs> before I went and became an escort. And I did that by, uh, as you walk out of restaurants in the United States, don't know what it's like where you're at, but there would be escort uh, magazines. You know, there's your liberal magazines with the escort ads in the back and the massage parlors. And I was like, I'm not pretty enough to be an escort. So I called them up. I met a girl, and she introduced me to, like, she's like, I work with two or three agents. I, my phone's constantly ringing. So I kept so busy. I paid off um, all the debt that I was being crushed under, paid off car, paid off plastic surgery. And I, it just, my heart was still crumbling. Like, my first journal entry, because I was a journaling dork, right. was what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but lose his very soul? I had lost my calling. I would lost my circle of friends. I had lost what I thought was my circle of influence. Like, my whole stage was completely gone. And so when I went into, um, when I went to a swingers party, I was introduced to a gentleman who had an adult website, and this is back when people paid for pornography. Um, and it was a Laura Croft Tomb Raider, and I was—he was like, "I had the model freak out about it. Do you want to take it over?" And I was like, "Absolutely." So, I was introduced to being an amateur porn producer, <laughs> but I definitely realized I don't want to edit my own videos. So I was like, "You take your cut. I'll take mine." 
and I was introduced to the silent world of addiction because all of those websites have a back room. Right. And you know who's logging in, at what time, what country they're coming from. And I quickly saw that the Bible Belt of the United States, they were my biggest fans. And I saw that Sunday, the day that we are to be at rest, I saw that Sunday was the very day that most of my business took place. And just in watching the back room, I'd watch the back room just to, just to like entertain and be in awe of what's going on. But then I was like, I can't look at the back room anymore of the website. I can't, I cannot tolerate seeing that these, this is the Bible Belt. These are the Christians that are watching. And also escorting at the same time, I had put like, ah, oh, preacher's kid. And I just kept attracting the hurt and the broken of churches. They were booking me as an escort, spilling their hearts. And I was like, I don't want you to spill your heart to me. I don't want to hear about it. And so um, I just became more angry because I was like, this is where the church is. They're on the porn sites. So um, I spun out in that addiction. I quickly moved to Denver from Colorado Springs. I called all the high-end girls and I said, hey, why don't we all work together in this awesome apartment I have? And so I didn't know anything about brothels. (laughs) <laughs> but we had a brothel. Like we, I didn't collect money from anybody, but we just knew that we made more money when we worked together. And um, so I lived this double life, and I would send money to my parents, like out of guilt, like God didn't take care of me, so I really hope he takes care of you. Or there was the sadness inside of me when I would hear my parents say, oh, my goodness, all this money just came in, you know, because they were missionaries at the time. And all this money came in, and I was so angry with God. I was like, God, why are they more special than me? Why did you take care? Why do you take care of them and not me? And like, I'm evaluating my life. Like, what have I done wrong? No. Yeah. <laughs> why do good bad things happen to good people? That that age old question that we would think in ministry we'd have the answer to. So. So the porn industry. One of the, the number one things that, that many of us are trying to do inside the churches is to wake people up to the reality of what pornography actually is, what it does, not only to the people who are watching it, but to the, to the girls who are acting in, in the porn industry to explain the sorts of things that take place inside the porn industry and to give people a picture of what they're supporting with their money, with their clicks, with their time, with their attention, and, and all of that. So... Let's say you meet a, a, a Christian man, he's about 21 years old, and he tells you that he looks at porn for a couple of hours every night. What are you going to tell him about the porn industry that will make him realize what is actually taking place behind the scenes? He is watching, um, he's watching human trafficking. He's watching a social class system that the, that the United States has endorsed. He's watching uh, slavery remade. Um, there is not... There is very few girls in the pornography industry. They're not being trafficked. They would call them renegades or, yes, they call them, I didn't know this whole new vocabulary that was introduced to me. Um, but most girls are strippers, escorts. And when I say escorts, they mostly have a man that is driving them behind the scenes. Like, if you really love me, you do this. If you really love me, like, oh, we got to get a nicer house and a nicer car. And so they're introduced to, um, it's, what the FBI and Homeland Security call is a Romeo trafficker that tracks, right. that brings her in, falls in love, captivates her, and then he gets her to recruit more girls. 
so that they call it the bottom girl phenomenon, but they distance themselves from the illegal activity, and they make the girl the pimp and the girl the trafficker. So the United States has been pushing many laws through to um, to clean their records so they can get housing and they can go through recovery, and they can get an apartment once they go through recovery. But they are watching human trafficking. I we would in Hollywood we would joke like. Please leave your please leave your suitcase pimp. We'd call them the suitcase pimp. We didn't want them to come to our parties, bring their boyfriends, and their boyfriends start fights. So, um, so I knew what I was watching, and I knew that the girls were like, "Well, well, I'll be back next month, and I'll be back the month after that." And that is not the reality. I became um, my best friend was a porn agent's wife, and these are legal agents. This is all legal. She's a legal agent, and. Um, they knew exactly what was going on, is that these girls are being prostituted, being trafficked, coming to Hollywood to bring their rate back, like bring them up above $5 in the backseat of a car, and then go back to their towns, call people that, you know, tell people that they are, I'm a porn star. Well, we have, in the United States, and I know that they have them in Canada, we have buyer boards, sex buyer boards, and we call them reviewer boards. So no, they're um, yes. When men are when men are watching pornography, they are watching trafficked girls. And whenever whenever they're like, I want to like, I want more scenes. I want more scenes. I want more scenes. It's because it's this mental coercion that we cannot get out of. That we believe that once we believe that we are sixteen hundred dollars an hour, or once we believe that that we're sixteen hundred, we think that anything less is an insult. We think working at McDonald's or working an honest living, what we call squares, we think that is an insult to who we are. So we get stuck in this, like, this is my rate, this is my rate, and I have to keep working, and I have to keep doing, to keep that value system onto, on our lives. So we're stuck in a trap of, okay, the buyers are saying I'm no longer famous, so I have to do more scenes and more scenes and more scenes, and they're more violent scenes. Like, you might start off with the, the agents don't coach you, like, start off slow, girl, 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 boy, um, like, start off slow. The agents are there to get as many scenes out of you as possible, so they don't want a no list. When you come in, they make you sign a contract for the, your legal pornography agents, and they have you fill out your no list. They do not want to encourage the no list. They want you to take six guys or five guys, and they're like, come on, you're going to make $20,000 this week. Well, that girl is going to shove that into a needle up her arm, or she's going to shove that into a like a drug in a more high, and then that money is gone, and it's never going to be there. So it's constantly like, I have to keep filming and filming and more degrading scenes, and they get stuck into it. They go back to Kansas, Nebraska, Oklahoma, and then they get stuck in their drug addiction, and they can never afford a flight back to Los Angeles. Most girls never make it out of the porn industry. You're wondering what happened to this one scene wonder is that she got caught up into the addiction lifestyle and she's gone. Once she has a cigarette burn or her teeth are missing, like we are herded through like cattle in front of Hustler, Playboy, um, Naughty America, Reality Kings, all these different companies, we're herded through like cattle every Thursday are, are called ghosties and they're not looking for they're not looking for how awesome our bodies are. They're looking for our imperfections. So, and that's exactly the world that the pornography industry has created. Is a world that's constantly swipe, swipe, next imperfection. So when I graduated from my program, I was like, wow, this is the society the pornography 
created is the tender society that there's always something more. So um, it's so the biggest hope. When you say there's a lot of human trafficking in the porn industry, right? A lot of the one of the number one arguments for porn is, you know what? Even if it's as bad as you say it is, women are choosing to be in it, so whatever, right? So, what would your yes. response to that be when you say that, it, that there's trafficking? How, how would you highlight that? Um, it's a battle that we are currently um, in with the, the human trafficking allies here in the United States when they are posting pictures of little children in handcuffs and ropes is that the society that I live in is honestly like we don't have human trafficking because they think that some little seven-year-old is going to be going through Walmart with handcuffs. So they're like, it's definitely not a problem. What it is is the mental captivity. What happened in the 1990s when people started taking on domestic violence and saying, why don't you just leave the guy? And they couldn't, they could not understand why women don't leave the abusive guy. When, when FBI and Homeland Security train on this subject, they said, we are finding out that it's exactly the Stockholm Syndrome. It's the trauma bonding, the trauma bonding where you're, where you are, um, you're, you're, uh, you're roped in. If you study trauma bonding, you'll see that your, your sexuality, you're on a high that you, can, you feel like you cannot experience with anybody else. So there's that Stockholm Syndrome. And this girl is not in a physical captivity. She's in a mental captivity. And with many single mothers in, in our, locked into our poverty, our system of poverty, for example, I have to make over 12000 to get insurance in the United States. So I'm like not having insurance because I'm not making over 12000 But But they think that this is... This is the best choice that they have. If you look at the 9-11 jumpers, the ones that jumped out of the skyscrapers, like they tried to delete those people from history, saying that, well, if you commit suicide, the Catholic Church says they go to hell, so we can't tell people that they killed themselves. But when the, when the roof is crashing in and the, the ground is falling out from underneath you, a person hanging out a window 200 feet up in the air that's not saying that person is looking at their best option of dying. And so when you look at, when you look at the sex industry that we have created and that we have glorified from cooters, strip clubs, all the way up, that we are looking at women who they think this is the best choice that they have. So is it true then that inside the porn industry that women often get forced into doing things that they don't want to do? So when guys are watching pornography, they're often watching a girl getting forced into something she has absolutely no desire for. Absolutely. For the contracts that we say are on our yes list or our no list, for example, um, if we say uh, that we allow toys, in the girl's mind she's thinking one thing, but when she arrives on set for um, a BDS BDSM company, it's like machines that are going to haul on her and strap her from the roof and the ceiling and, and, and beat her. And she is like, if she backs out, she has to pay a thousand dollar kill fee. So once she's on set, she can't back out because she said that she allowed toys. So many girls end up on sets and it's not what their contract said. But they still have to do it because that the pressure is that one producer will talk to the other producer, will talk to the other producer, and they'll never get hired again. So they are like, I can't make anybody upset. I have to take this. Right. So, again, one of the things that you mentioned, right, is that in, in the porn industry you would stay around because you would look down on other people and stuff like that at the same time. 
the picture you paint of what's going on behind the scenes is so horrifying. Why does anyone stick around? Um, huh, because they know that they can't get, they don't, um, they don't see a society that will welcome them back. I love following the gentlemen that I went through the porn industry with because men are like, oh, what can I do to get into porn? And there was a red carpet event. I threw my drink at this guy and I'm screaming, how do I get out of this? And when guys are trapped in it, they're realizing, okay, I can't go back to a trade school. I can't get a real job. And I'm following the guys I went through porn with, and they're constantly on their timelines going, okay, I just got called into the office and fired from this job because they found out what I, what I used to do. And it's the guy, guys are even sick of this. So it's that realization that there's not, there's not a world and a society out there to take me in when I choose to get out. Um, Whenever I was at pornography conventions, because we have porn conventions in major cities, we had Christians going, um, you're going to hell, like, die, go to hell. And this girl was picketing right in front of my face, like, um, turn or burn, fly or fry, live or die. And I started crying. I crouched underneath my booth because I was like, is that the Christians that are waiting for me? And it's like, I can't go back. I can't go back. I can't go back. So what about the, the the violent side of things? Because I, I interviewed another former porn star a little while ago, and she was in the industry um, in the early 90s, and she said that from her perspective that, that everything has changed so much and so fast, right? The new craze oh, yeah. is violence. The new, the new craze you know, helped along by things like Fifty Shades of Grey, but it was rising even before then, is, is sexual violence. And, and in fact, one American porn producer said that the future of porn is violence. So from, from that perspective, so many people you know, like to pretend that, that pornography is just essentially videos of people having sex. But is it as violent as the alarmists say it is? Oh, absolutely. It's like playing um, Super Mario Brothers, or back in my day it was like Atari, is that you can, you're can you only satisfied with playing Space Invaders for so long before you're like, dude, I'm done with Space Invaders. I want something more violent, more shocking, and that's why we push the envelope more in our entertainment industry with more shocking lyrics, more shocking everything, is because with addiction you need a greater high. So they're like, okay, if we can marry... Uh, domestic violence <laughs> and sex acts, then the girl is going, okay, so I should like to be hit and I should like to be smacked. And the guy who's five or six or seven years old now on his phone, because less than 16% of parents filter on their phones, is that he's going, okay, girls like to be hit. They like to be smacked. So we've not done away with domestic violence. We've glorified it and give the woman who can endure the most trauma, we give her a tr plastic trophy at the end of a red carpet. What did what, what kind of impact does the sexual violence have on the people inside the porn industry? Because you have a different view than most people have, right? Because you actually saw what happened to the people who experienced that sort of thing. What was that like? Um, well, I remember watching a rape happen at a party, and uh, it was by this producer who was putting his entire hand inside this girl's body, and there was blood everywhere, um, and, you know, not your normal place that you fine blood but um i was watching rape and i called my publicist and i said what do you what do i do and he's like get out of there you don't want to be associated with that he said that i was going to do crazy things with and i was like i remember going into the bathroom and i'm like if you don't do whatever he wants you're not going to get hired so i went back out there and he was 
raping another girl who was unconscious. So when I saw her two weeks later at a go-see, I'm like, I am so sorry about that, that I didn't do anything. And she said, are you kidding? I'll do anything for a scene. Isn't that crazy? So I saw violence. I at the porn parties there, it's ran like the mafia that uh, before uh, OSHA had not stepped in until 2011. Um, so I was fighting to keep condoms out of porn. It was only me and one other girl. So I have seen the porn industry get humbled before. Um, but it's, you get in such this mental captivity of yelling, my body, my choice. And I stood up in a hearing and I'm quoted for saying, did you cash the check when this girl said that she was raped on set? Because we are so delusional that she got paid, so she should shut up. But in all actuality, the pornography industry is profiting off of mental illness. My PTSD has, uh, complex PTSD has cost the mental health care system over almost a million dollars in three years. So it's like that America is paying now or it's paying later. But you can only consent to rape so many times before you mentally disassociate so far out of your body that you're no longer, it's multiple personalities. You're, you're splitting your personalities and there's so many mental disorders that this is causing because the human body can only go through so much rape. What was it that finally brought you out of the movement? Uh, the movement? You know, the bad the bad movement? <laughs> uh, yes. Um, what brought me out of the pornography industry in 2011, um, I had seen HIV cover-ups, and these are my, like, this is my family. Like, to me, they're my new family. I would spend holidays, Mother's Day, Father's Day, Christmas with these people, and we all see the test, we all see each other as tested, and if you bring in gonorrhea or syphilis or anything, that you're not going, the chances are high you're not going to be hired again because we don't see you as professional. But I was seeing, um, I was seeing cover-ups and HIV cover-ups, and I'm watching databases like the screen go blank or some girl in Florida, she's on her Twitter, and she's going, oh, my goodness, there's three positive tests here, and she's freaking out. And I get a hold of my publicist because, like I said, I didn't know everybody has handlers. My my adult video network uh, publicist, he was my handler, and I'm like, uh, is this serious? This is serious. And it was right over the weekend of a pornography convention, and she's in Florida. She's going, wait a minute, I'm watching, I'm, I'm seeing HIV cover-ups taking place right in front of me, and then a half an hour later, her timeline's deleted, and I'm contacting, we have our own news sources, so to speak, and I'm going, did anybody else see this? Like, am I going crazy? And other everybody's whispering behind the scenes, like, what do we do? And I'm freaking out because I know the Florida people are going to be flying back to Los Angeles, and they're going to be sleeping with everybody that night at the porn convention parties and clients and everybody unprotected. They're bringing HIV back to, the, to California, and we're covering it up because we don't want to kill the porn convention. So uh, what got me out was I saw a cover-up. My best friend um, who had so many college degrees and her dream was to be a college professor. She was a year or two older than me, and she was, she was like, I'm trapped. I was her last friend. I had her thrown out of my hotel in New York, and then it was like a week later, I hear that she overdosed in a trap house because she could not get a job. She could not get hired as a professor, which was her dream job. So I'd seen the suicide. Um, my, I was dating uh, the highest paid male actor to ever live. 
and he was bisexual and I was like, dude, I can't. And I lived with it for over a year after I knew, and I was going to the porn parties where their kids are being raised around all this sex. And I was like, is this what I want in life? So in 2011, um, I shipped my car. I walked away from a full apartment and I was just bawling in the Burbank airport. And for once, I didn't care what I looked like. I'm rocking back and forth on the floor going, I just want to be normal. I just want to be normal. So I get back to Colorado. And of course, by the time I get back to Colorado, I didn't know how to do a Dave Ramsey Financial Peace University and how to balance a budget. I didn't know how to live under $5,000 a day. My life was out of control. So um, so after three failed suicide attempts and I'd went on many match dates, like I was seeing clients during the day and going on match dates at night. <laughs> and I'm like, I just want to get married. I just want to get out of this. Where's my Prince Charming? So after three failed suicide attempts, that's when I went on to be a madam. <laughs> so that's the next part of the story that's, then. What, how, how, yes. how did that all unfold? Okay. So um, on our sex buyer forums, I had made it my life goal to have perfect reviews. Like I could not be less than perfect. And my little fan base was like, why don't you recruit girls? And I'd seen, you know, how Hollywood recruits girls. And I was like, okay, I'll recruit girls. And at first I started off on like, um, a, you know, we have Craigslist and Backpage and I started off on adult gigs, but the girls were showing up and they didn't look like their photos. So naturally I'm on social media and I'm like, well, these girls look great. And there's no filters on cell phones back then. So once again, I start looking for imperfections. I start friending around them. Um, so that they look like, oh, okay, she's friends with so-and-so and so-and-so. And I'm going to expensive lunches and expensive dinners, and I'm living the good life. I make my life look so attractive that it is so easy to steal the daughters of the middle class. That was my target audience, is that you have college debt, um, you have college debt, you have bills, you want a nicer car, you don't want to struggle, you want to skip the struggle in life going through college. I'm here to be the struggle's solution. So um, I would, I quickly found out uh, that I did not want drinking and drugs in my house because if the girls were so drunk, they'd fall off the bed and then get a bad review. And I had to make sure that they're cleaned up for the next guy because we were having at least 30 to 40 clients a day. And it's like, you have to be sober to make sure that you look clean and fresh for the next one. So, um, so no, the girls on the first day, I said, you'll make $1,000 by noon. You can walk out the door if you don't make that money. And so in other words, I left it open to them. And then the first day they were fine with it. And the second day they said, how do we do this sober? And I was like, you stare at the money. I was constantly always telling them, stare at the money because the men who are coming through the door are their grandpa's age. And I said, stare at the money or stare at the bridge of their nose because they're going to suck the life out of you. So I was like, don't make eye contact with them. It was something that I had learned. And then after I got out of the sex industry, I realized I graduated into a world where hardly anybody looks anybody in the eye because we don't want people to suck the life out of us. And how did that end? If I recall correctly, didn't you get you got charged by the federal authorities, didn't you? No. Well, um, I was one of those people of keep your friends close and your enemies closer. So I was working with Vice to take down my nemesis. And I'm like, okay, this is how you get through her screening process. This is how she does things. So I was going in there to take other girls down. 
And um, we have like a Heidi Slice version that's over tons of the underground escort sites. And she, <laughs> as I'm firing girls and they're trying to get verified on her sites, they're like, well, Jessica works for the Vice. So she was calling me up to chew me out and say that I can't be on any of her websites. So I went in on October 5th of 2013 to record this conversation I was going to have with this Heidi Slice, and the room was full of vice cops, and they're like, we are not looking at anybody but you. Nobody here, Nobody's in trouble but you. And the file on the desk was my file. I had a long paper trail, um, credit cards. I, I never used disposable credit cards till the end. That was it was my ads. My um, I was taking out ads in the in the local p- liberal paper. I was so out there, and they, you know, they were like, "We hear that you're bringing in girls from other countries," and I was like, "No, here's my passport. It was always in my purse." And I was, they called me a human trafficker, and they just read off these charges, and they're like, "You're looking at 30 years in prison for human trafficking," and I'm looking over my shoulder, like, "Surely you are not talking to me." And I had drank my own Kool-Aid that I was doing the world a favor, that I was keeping marriages together. And so that night I got snapped into reality. And, of course, that whole time through my recovery process, I was like, I'm a human trafficker. And during my time this last year speaking with Homeland Security and FBI, they were like, your girls were over 18, and that's called consent. So we cannot, we could have never charged you with human trafficking. Can you believe that? <laughs> clever is a clever ploy, though. Oh my goodness! It definitely worked on me. So uh, I guess I was just the social media madam, but um, it scared me straight. It was some good foxhole religion for me. I waited over a year to get um, what the Christian world calls baptized because I was like, I want, I want everybody to know that this is going to stick. So, uh, so yes, I went on the run to the Texas oil fields. In those three years from back from Hollywood. I was going to church services, altar calls, and I was telling people, like, I'm stuck. How do I do this? And I was sending out 300 emails to the top of Google of the anti-trafficking movement. No responses. And I still have those emails, and I still love screenshotting them. And then forgiving, like, Jessica, forgive them. Send them a T-shirt. Sew into their ministry. Um, They know who I am. They know where my email is. They can pull it up as easy as I can in their history. So it was, it's been an awesome process of forgiveness um, that, I mean, like right now I get so busy that I'm like, oh, dude, it's been a week since I've replied back to emails. So I can understand the craziness. And in 2013, everybody was trying to reach, rescue, and restore. And just now in 2017, coalitions are rising up in every city where some reach, some rescue, some restore. Everybody gets their um, – everybody is attacking from their position to raise us back up with love. And it's almost like an underground, it is the underground railroad system. Um, We have private rooms where we can ask, hey, does anybody know a program with an open bed in Missouri? Does anybody have an open bed in Oregon? And it's like an underground railroad of, you know, there's private planes now that fly girls around. It just was not organized as much in 2013. So I fell through the cracks. I slept on my uh, recoveries. Uh, a 1,200 square foot house. I slept on the floor for two and a half months till a bed came open, and there was nine of us in 1,200 square feet, and that brought out a lot of character defects. <laughs> wow. 
Yeah, so you went, so you I went love from it. somebody who got out of the porn industry, and then when I met you, of course, at Nicosi's conference in Houston, Texas, and you were just mm-hmm. starting off your new career as somebody who was trying to take the porn industry down. And since then, I see these nonstop Facebook messages, uh, you know, mm-hmm. and postings about your, your your various tactics and taking down the porn industry. So now that we've kind of discussed how terrible everything is, and I'm sure we'll have a have a follow up conversation as well because there's mm-hmm. so there's so many there's so many things that you've touched on. Uh, that that deserve that deserve a conversation all by themselves. But let, let's end yeah. on a hopeful note. Tell everybody what you're doing to fight the porn industry and where they can where they can find your resources. Absolutely, um, I am basically a witness. And in my self discovery of last year, I had spoke to over 750 thousand people. It was insane, and it was just my story over and over again. And I stopped looking at my Facebook messenger because everybody kept telling me their stories. And I told churches, I was like, I can't do altar calls. I can't pray over these people because I can't hear any more stories. And then when I, um, I just had a crashing down moment in October, it was like right after I met you where I was like, I can't, I can't take everybody's stories. And then it was very clear to me, um, this director for my recovery was like, well, why don't you have a shirt that says this is my story? And I was like, that's so stupid. Well, it was the month of December when I'm Googling, like, how to start a nonprofit, how to have a board, branding, marketing. Um, It was like, this is my story. Like, this is the story of an entire nation. That that which was killing me in 2016 of here's a story and here's, here's all these stories and we can't do anything about it. So... Right now, as the months are ticking by and bills are um, progressing and people are going, wait a minute, can we really take on the porn industry? And I'm like, hello, Canada's trying. We've got the U.K., these progressive uh, uh, first world countries are trying. And I'm like, look, it's been done. You're not crazy anymore. So um, as, as hearings are taking place, I'm challenging the United States in my little social circle of get to the courthouses, be that story that as the months are going by, I'm understanding this truly is about the story of a nation. And what was killing me in 2016 was actually my calling is to make a platform, build a platform for every person's story, every person's story, that child that's been molested by another child, that woman who's been divorced, the woman who is in addiction herself and she feels alienated. Like this is the story of a nation to be called out of darkness and step into a calling. So I'm really excited about what the future holds. I really am. (laughs) Well, thanks so much for taking the time to do, uh, you know, round one of a conversation on this. Oh, absolutely, and I can be found on uh, Facebook as This Is My Story Dot Solutions or Jessica Joy. Uh, the website is This Is My Story Dot Solutions because whenever I, I'm like I keep saying when the dust settles every Friday, I want to do interviews with the solutions that this is not a sad story that that we are in a moment in, of of time of abolition, the final tipping point of the human trafficking movement where we're uprooting and we're tearing down, but then we need to restore and grow back the land. And that can only be done through healing and intimacy. So I'm preparing the soil. Like, yes, we are tearing down, but there is a solution and you do recover.